Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, before we kick off this podcast with GF Williams, renowned commercial photographer and someone I've known for quite a long time. I just wanted to sort of point out a couple of things. One, we have show notes in all the episodes, so you can look in the description. On YouTube, it's pretty easy. On the audio format, it's in the description below. And if this this podcast gets a bit camera sort of intensive photography at one point, um, if that's not really your jam, I'd check out the show notes and then we talk about lots of other stuff later down the line. And unfortunately, at the very end, in the five questions, we had a little bit of a blip. I managed to kick a power lead and uh, kill the kill the mics so we, we lost a little bit of stuff in the very end so if it seems like we've only got a couple of the five questions uh that's that's what's happened but the important stuff is still there enjoy hi everyone welcome to the car chat podcast i'm here today with george williams hello hello thanks for having me <laughs> welcome welcome to an in-person podcast. These are exceptionally rare these days, but we live not too far away from each other. So we figured, let's meet up, have a chat. Um, right. Can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do? Okay. So as I've been introduced as George Williams, I should probably explain I'm GF Williams <laughs> on everything online. Um, or Hell Slow, if you know my car, because ah. that's also its own little brand now, it seems. But I am a commercial automotive photographer. I shoot for various different brands and seem to have kind of pigeonholed myself a little bit into the luxury and supercar end of the market. It wasn't 
deliberate. Um, but yeah. that's where I've ended up with my work, and I, I love it. It's great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll have a bit of a chat about that. <laughs> why? Why do you think the luxury end? Because I like. I generally, if I'm shooting stuff, it's generally the more expensive end. But why, why do you think you've ended up there? So I would consider myself to be a massive car enthusiast. Mm-hmm. And I think naturally, as a car enthusiast, you want to be shooting supercars, classic cars, luxury Rolls Royces, that kind of stuff, over the hatchbacks and that kind of thing. It's I find it quite aspirational to be around these cars. Yeah. And therefore... I want to be shooting them. Yeah. And over time, I think you end up with friends with those kind of cars as well, uh, as you do as well. So, yeah. And then I've, I've always said, like, people, or oh, do you get this question? When someone asks, like, what do you do? And you say, I photograph cars. Um, and they go, cars? And they're like, just cars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of that. There's also, everyone goes, oh, just for magazines. Okay. Yeah. And I have to explain, and actually, most of my clients are the car manufacturers. Okay, yeah. Um, so to give you a little idea of the people that I shoot for, uh, I mean, over the last couple of years, I did the launch photography for the Dutamazo P72, mm-hmm. uh, the Rimac C2 when it was at prototype stage, the Zinger 21C, which is a hypercar that is additive manufactured out in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, I did the Koenigsegg one-to-one. And the one that kind of launched my career uh, and got me kind of to level up a little bit was the McLaren P1 mm. out in Bahrain, which was oh, yeah. all the way back in 2013, 2012. Wow. God, that was a long time ago. I remember that shoot. Yeah, that, I, I, I re- still think it's one of my best. I, I like, yeah, I'm not saying you haven't done good stuff since, but like that was absolutely, I remember seeing the photos and just being like, oh, wow, this is like gone to another level. But what was amazing is it was never supposed to be that level of... Sh- it wasn't supposed to be a release for the car. Okay. All it was was it was the car had gone out to the Middle East on its world tour. Yeah. And Mark Harrison, who was the regional manager at the time, said, George, come out. Let's do some awesome pictures. We'll give you the Bahrain International Circuit <laughs> for a few days, which meant we shot two sunrises and a sunset. Okay, yeah. And just had the track the entire time to ourselves, which at that stage in my career is just yeah. blown away by. So it led to pictures that were kind of much better than any of us expected. Yeah. And therefore McLaren went, oh, we're, we're just going to use these for everything. <laughs> so it was a bit that of is, a win. That is an absolute dream situation. It's, and it's funny, that point, uh, you're saying like, you've got the track for two days and that meant you shot you know, two sunrises and a sunset. And people go, yeah, but you had two days. You had 24 hours. And then like, no, we only shoot a sunrise and sunset. Well, what was interesting is we were still at the track the whole time. Yeah. And when the P1 came out, the only cars that were out were 12C and 12C Spider. Mm. So McLaren gave us a 12C Spider to just <laughs> hang out with. So we ended up just doing loads of laps of the track during the day. It was great fun. Nice. It didn't really feel like work. <laughs> and then and then you've got a certain, what, an hour, hour and a half or something to really... Of, of intense like, pressure. Kick it up a notch. Okay, so how did you get into all of this? Car, car nut for a, a long time? So I've always been a car nut. Um, 
when I was growing up, my dad had a few Porsches um, and then he went to Catrum. Mm-hmm. So he had a blue Catrum and anyone that doesn't know Catrum is a very driver focused car. And that is very much what my interests are now. I love lightweight cars. Yeah. When I was about 16, I started taking pictures and it was mainly an excuse to move the Catrum around the driveway. <laughs> I don't know how many three point turns I did with that car, but a lot, way yeah. too many. Um, probably ruined its clutch. Um, so it led on from that. I took millions of pictures on that driveway um, to me wanting to go and shoot in more interesting locations and actually enjoying the photography side as well. Yeah. And I asked on piston heads on the forums, and this shows how long ago it was when people still used it, um, if anyone wanted some shots of their cars. And yeah. Of course, people said yes. Um, I went and shot a Mustang, was my first ever shoot. And then... An Ultima the week after yeah, at Denby's, which is the location I still use today. <laughs> um, and the picture, people like the pictures and it just led to more until eventually some people said, do you want some money for this? <laughs> yes. Um, and I realized that I could make a bit of a career of it, but I never saw myself as becoming a photographer at that stage. So yeah. I actually went to uni and did or well, started a degree in computer science. Oh. I realised it wasn't for me. Um, <laughs> over that year, I was in Nottingham and my client base started building up a bit. I started earning a bit more money from the photography mm. and I realised I couldn't really do both because it does take quite a lot of time to have a career in photography, Yeah, as you know. Um, and uh, it built up from there and I decided to leave uni and go full out on the podcast 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 photography uh, on the photography <laughs> it's you that does the podcast uh on the photography and it's led me to where i am now after it's been 10 or so years yeah it's crazy like i think i was trying to remember earlier when we first met haymarket studios haymarket studios so you came along for the photography day yes i was piston actually working for piston heads at the time as a summer job so I wasn't doing photography for them. I was doing testing because right. I did computer stuff back then yeah. and understood them still. Um, <laughs> and I was just helping out with the studio and you oh, came wow. along for, uh, it was an actual session, wasn't it? Yeah, it was um, Piston Heads used to do these photo sort of shoot lesson days. I can't remember who the photographer was. Pete Spinney? Is that a name? I don't know. I think, I, so. honestly, I, I think I it was, he was the auto remember. car photographer at the time. Um, and what car? And they'd set up. It was quite cool, actually. They've got a couple of... You could come down and bring your own car. Um, I think I just... I had an, like, my A3 at the time. I don't think. And um, someone... And they've got, an, uh, they've got an R8 from Audi, I think. Yeah, the blue one. The blue one. Spider. Um, <laughs> and then we all sort of they set it up in a studio. And I remember... Like, I remember that vividly of... Him like pointing all the lights at the ceiling, which is basically something I've never ever done since. Like, which is funny, like using hot lights. And um, what's also interesting is that everyone had their cameras fairly close, but to the side of each other. Yes. And anyone that knows anything about studio photographer is you set your camera position and then you light. Yeah. You don't ever move your camera once you've lit because the lighting becomes wrong because yeah. cars are a mirror effectively. <laughs> And in a studio, it's especially obvious if you light it wrong. Yeah. So. And then I think everyone was posting those pictures. Like, I, I, I posted that picture. It's like, yeah, I took this picture. I mean, like, 
Yeah, portfolio worthy. Like portfolio worthy stuff or whatever. And then, then like, could you recreate that? Probably not. <laughs> but I mean, for me, every time I was in a studio, it was a massive learning lesson. And yeah. you just learn as, and absorb as much as you can. And the other thing I've learned over time is it's how good your assistants are in a studio. Mm. And you'll learn a lot from them because they've worked with so many people yeah. that they know how to do it better than I probably ever will. <laughs> But if you've got good assistants and you work with a few, you learn different methods. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 a crazy thing like that. Like I find, yeah, like assistants and stuff like that. Assistants could have generally have had tons more experience than you. They've worked with loads of people. They just so happen to be a photography assistant, but they're also, you know, into photography and do whatever and blah, blah, blah. And having, I find having, just having other people around you get so many more ideas. Well, most assistants don't want to shoot and don't want to edit. They mm. don't want. They want to go home and relax. They don't want to have to edit <laughs> all the photos, which I think they're probably wise. Do you edit all your stuff? Uh, 99%. I also now do quite a lot of retouching for other people. Oh, okay. Which is certainly more over the last year since I've been able to travel less. Yeah. Other people have been doing the jobs that I would have been doing <laughs> and therefore I retouch them to get the quality where the client wants it. Oh, interesting. Interesting. What is retouching? From someone that hasn't got a clue, like, so, I would say it's like editing. It's under the editing bracket, but... It, it, it's changing it, basically. Changing a photo. Um, and I think there's a common misconception with people that because you have to retouch means that the picture's not good and that's not really the case nowadays i think retouching is such a key part of the photography process Mm. so i shoot everything knowing exactly what i'm going to do in the retouching stages so that i have all the elements yeah and i see the photo effectively as just data that i'm using to then manipulate to get exactly what i need out of it so for those of you that don't know photoshop is the program you use to edit photos yeah there's also lightroom but weirdly i've never used it you still not use lightroom still never even tried so if, if you were to add it like 100 photos what would you use photoshop really okay <laughs> so i have a good reason for this as well so i've always aimed to do less photos at a higher quality yeah and therefore i want to open every single photo in photoshop to have a proper look at every single one before it gets delivered. Okay. And therefore, I think Lightroom is definitely quicker. It makes a lot more sense to most people's workflows. But for me, it's not what I'm aiming for. Like my workflow starts, everything comes into Lightroom. That's sorted, basic stuff. Like you get the white balance right and all that sort of stuff and some basic sort of getting it to a starting point. And then depending on the photo or depending on the shoot, if it's a, a, a proper shoot and you might have 20 photos or 15 photos or five photos or whatever it is, then there's a lot in Photoshop. And then I finish it. I just do cropping and stuff like that back in Lightroom. Yeah. Um, but so, so I work a bit differently in that I'll use Bridge just to sort stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I'll get it through Adobe Camera Raw into Photoshop. So all the cropping and everything like that will be done. Well, actually, cropping tends to be last after the edit. Um, And I'll do a separate file for all that. But uh, And the other thing is not every shoot is the same. Yeah. So some will just go straight out of Adobe Camera Raw, 
straight to the client and that's job done. Some shops will have 10 hours in Photoshop. Yeah, yeah. I think when when you're talking about um, like you taking the photos and you're seeing the final image, in that situation, yes, that's that could be a single frame and you know, like I, I know what's easy. Let's say you're in something that's like, there's something in the background, like a, a pylon wire, electricity wire or something. And you go, well, I can't move that. So I'll just take the picture and I know I can remove it. Yeah. Um, if there's something like a dustbin in the way. You can try and move it. Just move it. <laughs> or just pick an angle that doesn't show it. Or That's the around. other thing is you learn with time just to avoid these things yeah. as much as you can because you don't want to be spending any more time in Photoshop than you have to. Like, it's not that enjoyable. Yeah. It is work. I think I found at the beginning, when I first started taking photos, I don't know if you found this, like, you know, like Photoshop was this amazing thing. You love playing in it, in it. And probably locations and cars and light were not necessarily particularly great. So you spend a lot more time in Photoshop trying to make it look cool. Yeah, and I think also when you're starting out, you and everyone has to go through this stage where you go too far with things. Mm. And as you learn, you you rein it back quite a lot. Yes, everyone has these crazy like halos around their like over sharpened, over HDR, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then, but then weirdly, if you post to something like an old school HDR on Instagram or something. I don't know. I haven't seen it in a while, but everyone goes mental. Luckily. People love it. Yeah. Never know what to expect <laughs> with Instagram. But then I, I always found, I love looking at my pictures big. And most of the time I see them at least on my screen, which is 27 inches or something like that. And But then it gets, some pictures work amazingly big. Yes. But you make them really small and they don't, yeah, they and it's a shame look. so many pictures nowadays only get seen on a phone screen. Yeah. It sort of defeats the whole point of putting in so much effort and making sure like <laughs> not even a blade of grass is wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot of effort for people just to go, oh, yeah, like. Like, next. <laughs> <laughs> or or another account to just go uh, copy, upload, <laughs> share, don't credit. Thanks. Yeah. And also ruin the quality in the process. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. <laughs> How do you think your sort of style has changed over the years? I think I go through phases. Um, so sometimes I go more extreme with the edit side. Sometimes I go more on the lighting side. Um, it's really hard to pinpoint your own style. Yeah. Really hard. So to describe it, I think my stuff is quite sharp. I don't use huge amounts of depth of field i think because with commercial photography it's really important the whole car is sharp yeah so you want both front front to back wheels sharp because ultimately you're selling a product yep um i think over the last two years i've very much developed my color style um to give it a lot more punch Mm. uh, which i personally much prefer um yeah i found one of the things I love playing with, and I don't know when I started playing with it, was playing with the actual colours. Yes. Which for... Colour grading. Yes, colour grading, as a sort of videographer, filmmaker would call it. I don't know, it's just editing in a in a camera. But it was... I would say colour grading is probably the difference between when someone used to love 
the look of film. They would say, oh, there's something about that. And I've literally never really used film. So it's like, so the Kodak something or other, crummy, blah, 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 blah. Sorry, people that use film. Yeah, um, I'm too young. For and, and they'll say, oh, but that looks so much better than the photo from my digital camera or iPhone or whatever. And a lot of it is literally just like the hues of the colors. So like you might look at the greens, for example, might be like particularly like yellow or bright or something straight out of your phone. And then as soon as I started messing with that, I suddenly was like, oh, wow, this is like a, it's a simple thing, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And I think actually everyone probably sees pictures and colors slightly differently. Mm. So it's very much a personal opinion as to what you like as, I mean, ultimately there's two sides of photography. There's the creative side and there's the technical side. Mm. And I've always been very much on the technical side side of things i'm I'm not the most creative person at all i think of everything as a process yeah and i apply my previous um like experience to know what will work and what doesn't yeah now along the way i've had to experiment a lot to get to where i am now in order to know what will work and what doesn't it makes it quite hard to be creative now yeah um but i think there is certainly a technical side to photography that is massively important like it's hard to describe but there is a almost an algorithm for photography yes like Uh, it it is a science the way light works there's the angle of refraction and everything like that reflection um (laughs) didn't do very well at physics but i vaguely (laughs) understand well i very much understand lighting and paint and everything like that yeah i think i i think i have a similar sort of attitude and I also was, I've been wondering about this recently, like being a younger photographer versus, versus being an older photographer. I think it's when you're young, everything's new and fresh and you may not have actually come across that much photography and you haven't shot very much yourself. So you don't really know what you like. So it's quite those first, I don't know, five years or something for me, I was massively creative, just trying different stuff, learning new techniques. Every time I learned a new technique, I would try and add that and then push, you know, push and try something different, different location. And no doubt go too far quite often in the process. Exactly. And you create some all sorts of weird and wacky stuff. And then over time, you start to settle on like what you like. And you know, like you said, you know that if you take this angle of sun and this car and this location and whatever you're going to get a cool shot and it's going to be like aesthetically pleasing and all that. But then you lose. I think I'm definitely not as inventive and creative as I used to be. I can definitely shoot cool stuff. For sure. And I'm definitely not as creative as I was before. But at the same time, I don't feel I need to be because I know that I can go to a shoot in almost any scenario, even if it's a rubbish location with rubbish light, and I can pull something out that people will like. That's it. And I think... It differs a little bit when you're another photographer looking at other photographers and stuff because you see something that they've done. And an example of this I've always found, and I don't know about you, I love going on road trips with other photographers, like the snow tour trips, for example, that we've been on. And there's probably 10 photographers. Yeah, all with varying experiences, all with varying specialities. Yeah, and like everybody's pretty good now. You get yeah. We've all been doing it quite a long time, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think the first time 
I did a gumball. That was my first experience of doing a road trip with a bunch of other professional photographers. Me, or, me or, too. Or I would have called them professional photographers at the time and I wasn't yet. Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you get such an insight into the way other people's, like, people see stuff. Yes. And you get at the end of the day, there's this like photo dump, isn't there? It's like it's slightly competitive. Slight, slightly. This is probably the most competitive scene for a photographer ever. And it's not just like, is it a cool photo? It's, is it a cool photo? And was it WhatsApp to the group within about 10 minutes of it being taken? Yeah, you're not allowed proper time for editing. <laughs> <laughs> and you just like, the stuff that gets thrown in, you just like, I was standing next to you and... I didn't think yeah. of that. How did you get that? How did you get that? <laughs> Where did you climb, Oscar? <laughs> yeah, Oscar. <laughs> Oscar Back, who is a he's, an, he's a very, very, very good photographer and a, a bit of an inspiration of mine for years. And a very good climber, it seems, because he's always basically above you in, in life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's always up somewhere high, yeah. getting some, some different angles and whatnot. But I found that the most amazing way of learning yes and i couldn't recommend hanging out with other photographers whether they're good obviously the better the better but like you want to be able to criticize each other and give each other props and all that sort of stuff yeah the thing i've always found hard about those trips is it's not really my speciality to shoot events and Mm. that kind of thing i have always loved setting stuff up Mm -hmm. And therefore, when I don't have the ability to set stuff up, I find it a bit challenging and out of my comfort zone, yeah. which is great because it means I improve. But, I mean, I'd rather be setting it all up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, that's a, it's, it's such a different thing, isn't it? Like, I, all of my early photography cars really was based around events, trips, and that sort of stuff. And you learn how to take photos in those situations. Once you've had the luxury of setting stuff up, you're like, well, I never really want to go back to those situations again because it's awful. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't like taking my camera to car events because yeah. people expect me to take the best pictures in the world. Like, well, I can't do that at a car event. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'd rather not bring my camera. Yeah. This is a key part that you're missing. Like, yes, yeah. I can take good photos, but they're on my terms at my time. And I'm not going to spend two hours lighting something at a car event. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, and it, I think if you're just starting out, so for someone that wants to get into photography. Yeah, it's a great opportunity and it's a chance to have cars. But I've always seen it as I see lots of people going to car events or car spotting and I, I've i never really done that side of things. Mm. So I look at it and I go, well, why are you doing that? You would be better off taking your friends or your mum's Volkswagen Polo yeah. and taking it to a good location and learning the art of photography yeah. as opposed to letting the car do the talking. Now, I've been very lucky that I've learned to do that with supercars. <laughs> um, so I may sound a bit contradictory there, but it's the process of planning, setting things up, thinking about the lighting, the direction, the reflections on the car, the shadows, yeah. that is actually what makes you a good photographer. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we often sort of look at, you know, a mundane car and you go like, okay, that's not massively interesting or whatever. But you can put, actually, an example of 
people using cars very well. It might often they've been to a rental when they're abroad or something. And it's more landscape photography. This is something I like more and more as time goes on. It's kind of like landscape photography with a car in it. Yeah, and that's something I've always aimed for. I think I saw it written on a forum when I was <laughs> quite young and starting out that actually if the car wasn't there, it would still be a good photo. Yeah. And I think it's actually quite key. Yeah. Um, y- yes, the car needs to look awesome, but you don't want to totally fill the frame with the car because then no one looks at the scenery. Yes, this is something... Have you ever shot motorsport? No, well, I try not to. Okay, so it's not, it's not something you've you've spent a lot of time Very, no. doing and whatnot. When I, I started doing a bit um, and I was looking at all of these photos, I think it was... I was chatting to um, Ollie Bryant. Do you know him? Okay. Um, anyway, sort of racing driver guy, whatever. He'd been at a bunch of events like Spa, Silverstone, whatever, Monza or whatever. And he was like, oh, here's me racing a GT40 at Spa. And it was a picture and the entire picture was the car. And yeah. it was a bit of track. So you'd it. never know where it is. And like, it doesn't back. tell a story. And that's the thing that's missing a lot of the time from photography. Yeah. And there's a there can be a that like video people expect a narrative stills mm. people often forget, yeah. And it's something I try and persuade my clients to do is to try and think of the narrative that they're trying to portray to people. It's not just a car and nice scenery. It should be there for a reason. It should yeah. suit the car, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Or the car should be on a racetrack because it's track focused. Not on grass or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's not a lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that element is massively important. And actually, one thing that that does allow as a photographer, you need less gear. Yes. If you're, um, who was I shooting with? Well, I don't bring much gear because I like to take my Lotus to shoots. So therefore, <laughs> you can't fit much gear. Okay, so... The, uh, a sort of maybe misconception. I don't know whether it is a misconception. I think it's reasonably true. Is photographers carry a lot of gear around. What sort of... If you were going to do, you know, some sort of shoot a manufacturer's car. Now, this probably, let's say, small manufacturer. What sort of gear would you take to your shoot? What do you carry around most of the time? So Rolls-Royce is probably a good example because I shoot fairly regularly mm-hmm. for them. And I will bring basically camera backpack. Um, which fits in the boot of the Lotus. Nice, yeah. Um, so that'll be camera, probably three lenses, um, and then backup, which I never use. Yeah. Um, and then I will bring a flash. So what lenses? Uh, so 85, 18, uh, and then 24, 70, and 16, 35 if I've got an interior shot. Yeah. Um, don't use the wide for any exteriors. Gets um, distorted. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, it. It can look okay for slight, like if you're doing something just for social, then it can have its use. But most of the time, a manufacturer wants to have set angles and yeah, focal lengths and a car that looks like a car. Yeah, and with every car, there's angles that work and angles that don't. Not every car is beautiful from, or no car is beautiful from every angle. Yeah. Um. So you want to optimize that. You're trying to sell cars for people ultimately. Yeah. So, yeah. So. I got those lenses and then I bring a flash. Um, I will try not to use any lighting unless I have to. Yeah. And the reason for that is it looks unnatural. Yeah. It's much better to shoot natural light if you can. It also takes time and takes more time to edit. Yeah. Um, but I will use one flash. I've got a Profoto B1. Is that like a 
it's like ba- battery thing. battery unit in it okay yeah, which yeah. is quite nice um so you can just walk around with it very easily and it's been very reliable touch wood yeah have you had that for a while yeah it's only failed once which considering how much i use it is pretty yeah. good going i've got a backup one that was brand new and was that like a, a bulb that didn't work or i think just I, the unit i think i dropped it fair enough <laughs> but these these things happen yeah um because yeah. that that's one thing i remember when i first started out i got a um a little flash i was shooting canon at the time so i had a 530 or 430 ex something little flash and then i you start going okay sh- when you shoot with it on your camera that looks awful <laughs> everyone yes. knows that you shoot with your iphone and you put the flash on it looks pretty rubbish yes so you try and get it at a different angle yeah and especially then- for cars cars you definitely don't want the light coming from directly where the camera is no because it'll reflect straight back in the car it, it yeah it's just it's it's not a good thing and then i bought a i've got a what's mine an Allen chrome something or other strobe flashy thing not this one we've got above us which is very there's a video light that i modded to make it quiet for the podcast um it was like 30 quid 40 quid eBay, ebay special yeah exactly exactly by cheap uh, by 10 <laughs> this is ours forever this is brilliant um but yeah then so you move to sort of shooting stuff off camera and then i bought a strobe unit so essentially you need to have a light that's a certain kicks out a certain amount of light yeah power yeah and, and the reason for that is that you are overcoming the natural light so the more powerful it is the more natural light you can get get rid of basically and that yeah. gives you more control yeah. um i don't know how you shoot with flash but i always shoot it on a tripod so camera remains still yeah and then move the flash around and i'll just shoot absolutely loads and then check see how it looks check where the hot spots are on the car see see how the reflections are and the shadows etc yeah. etc and i think one of the things that i learned with lighting a car is it's not what you do like, it's what you don't like. Yes. And, and the shadows it creates is actually more important. So that's try and think of that. That is absolutely something that I had like a, I don't like epiphany, but there was one day where I suddenly went, hang on a minute. Because I think a lot of people, when you start lighting a car, you light up everything. Literally everything. They might be lighting it with a, a phone flash and doing a long exposure where you sort of walk, what's that called? Light painting. Light painting. Um, where you have like a bright light and you walk over the car with a long exposure and the whole thing's lit up and they're like, that looks great. And then what that actually looks like is you've superimposed a car into the scene. Yeah. Fit in. And you want that natural light. So you'd shoot a longer exposure for the natural light if you're doing it at night. And you want a sort of light source. So it at least looks like (laughs) there is a reason for this car being lit up. And I think when you have directional light with some nice shadows yeah it then looks a lot more natural and while 99 percent of the general public won't be able to tell you why it looks weird they'll be able to tell you it looks weird yes if you get it wrong yeah yeah the if if the if there's this i don't know a if, light if, if the sun photo. is behind <laughs> you and the light is coming from the front people will be able to tell you it looks weird or they might if you go, here's one photo and here's another photo, and they'll just go, that one looks nicer. I don't know why. Yeah. And I think studio-ish photography, which, I mean, that's a sort of topic in itself. 
is I think we now with modern technology, digital, these lights that are very portable and whatever, you can do studio style stuff outdoors. To an extent, yeah. And that for me is like the perfect, ideally no lights, don't need any lights, natural light, amazing location, whatever. But if it's darker or something like that, then you might need to augment. Yeah, if you're shooting at night in a city and you've got a car that's not going to ping with the lights around it, you want it. You want the car to look good. You want the right body lines to be showing. Yeah. Like designers spend a very long time on these cars. There's a reason for the body lines, right? Yeah. So you want to show them off. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's. It's a never-ending thing, but I think we're starting to get to the point where more sort of launch photos and stuff, I would say, are done in a more interesting way that aren't just like a studio shot a bit wide, lit up. I I think there's different usage cases. I think every car launched, there's a reason for studio stuff. Hmm. And it's not always the most exciting stuff, the studio stuff. It's very hard to do an exciting studio shot. Yeah. But if you... I, I try and see things as art sculpture that i'm lighting not just a car yeah when i'm in a studio and take that different approach to it like the dutamazo is the perfect example when i shot that i did totally different lighting i basically did top lighting in a back in a black studio Mm. and it showed the lines off really well and i think to me that is one of the most beautiful cars i've ever shot uh and joe wong designed it he was very happy with the photos so i'd say it was a success yeah it's it's basically making the car look good that's what your job is isn't it yeah it's like but it 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 is more than that because certain people won't like when you do certain things yeah and that's when it starts to get tricky because some people just won't like a certain style of photography okay or a certain style of lighting yeah uh so when i shot for maserati the head of design said he didn't like the shots up to a certain point. So we had to go and retouch everything and redo it just because that that guy didn't like yeah. it. And in fairness to him, the final pictures were a lot better. So yeah. his input was really useful. Uh, it, it was just a pain. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I guess these images as well, they're getting used in a variety of places. They could be used on the website, so they have to fit in with the website. Like the overall colours of the website have to work the photography has to sort of blend into it, doesn't it? Yeah, so you like to know the usage before you're shooting hmm. uh, for your crops and your lighting and your colour toning. It For a good shoot, that is all planned out and it can, var- it can vary all the way from a billboard yeah. all the way to an Instagram post and, yeah. and everything in between. So you just... You need to plan as much as possible for it, whether it has text over it and you leave space for that. And there is a lot of thinking that's involved. I mean, most stuff nowadays seems to be the focus on social. Um, Yeah. But occasionally it gets blown up massive on a a billboard or something as well. Yeah. And I don't really know with a lot of my work whether they're (laughs) going to do that. So I tend to just retouch everything, assuming it will be. Yeah. So that everyone has the required quality. Which is yeah. probably overkill, but it seems to work. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be working. Getting employed. Yeah. Some good companies. Yeah, it's good. This is for, for the camera people. What camera are you using? 
You're using mirrorless these days? Yeah, so I'm on Nikon Z7 now. Okay. Which I love. It's a great camera. So what? what is that? That is the 42 megapixel okay. Nikon mirrorless. So Nikon's top mirrorless at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How are you finding the mirrorless? It's much easier. It's not good for panning shots. Yeah, because it, it has the blackout, which they need to fix because it's terrible. Yeah. Um, but I have a D810, I think, as the backup camera. Yeah. So I can shoot action on that if needed. And are you now on... Have Nikon made... Do they have a different lens mount? Yes, for the new one. For the new one. So are you on which, new lenses? So, yes, I've got new lenses for it. I've got an adapter as well. But in all honesty, the new lenses are so much better anyway. Hmm. And much quicker and focus better, quieter. Yeah. It's just much nicer. I think there was a bit of a... In that transition period, whether it was like people going from Canon to Sony or whatever to mirrorless, people were like, oh, I don't want to have to buy new lenses, so I'm going to stick with Canon uh, or Nikon or whatever. Yeah, and then, and then every- <laughs> you realise you've bought all new lenses anyway, and you go, well, <laughs> I may as well have just gone Sony. They've all changed the, uh, changed the amount. And but what was nice is going between a DSLR, Nikon, and the mirrorless one is that it was really, like there was no learning time, yeah. which is great. Yeah, and that is good. I still don't understand Sony menus. I can pick up any camera and use it to a pretty decent standard, as you'd hope. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? I, I've now had Sonys for a long time. I was Canon for a, a while. And so I had a Sony whilst I had a Canon and it just like getting used to it. But I mean, at the end of the day, unless you're getting into really niche focusing or whatever, like settings, yeah. the a camera's a camera. It's got like... It's just a tool to do Four a settings. I have used a Hasselblad. I've yeah. very kindly got lent one by a friend of ours uh, for a very long time. Mm. Um, but it's just not reliable enough. Um, the quality is amazing. Which, although, to be honest, the Nikon is so close to that quality nowadays that it's just not really worth shooting on anymore to yeah. me. So for the people that don't know what a Hasselblad is, it's a, it's a company that makes, I mean, it makes all sorts of cameras, but a medium format Yeah, camera. so it's got a sensor about twice the size of the Nikon. Yeah, so the sensor size is basically like the little bit that catches all the light in your camera. In your phone, for example, it's absolutely tiny, like way smaller than your fingernail. Uh, in your in a thirty five millimeter mirrorless, whatever thirty five mil across, it's thirty five mil across. <laughs> yeah. Um, then there's there's ones in between, and medium format is a bigger one than that. It's about double the physical size. Um, um, and the lens projects onto a bigger area. So that's where you get your quality from. And each, I think it's called, a, is it called a photon? The receiver yeah, yes. thing? I, I, I'm no camera expert, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, should be. It's What are they, diodes or something? I can't remember. Anyway, basically the, the, the little sensors. It absorbs sensors the light better. <laughs> absorb, yeah, and they're bigger. Yes. So you can have... Yeah, this, it's, this is diving into deep camera nerddom, but like you can have a 20 megapixel camera in your phone and imagine the sensor is really small and they've divided it up into 20 million pieces. Or you could have a sensor that's the size of whatever, your so iPhone screen. <laughs> and then you've got a 20 minute megapixel camera, so it's 20 million bits. Each of those bits is bigger. Yeah. And that it ultimately it just with light better. much better quality. Um, but in reality, nowadays, the tech has come a long way with the DSLRs. Yeah. Uh, so there's not much in it and it's not worth the hassle. Yes. The And uh, <laughs> I'd never thought of it like that, but hassle, blad. 
Um, yeah, it's very relevant. The focusing and stuff like that doesn't work the same as it does on a normal camera. No, it's terrible. You, you can just... basically focus in the middle and that's about it. Yeah, so you focus in the middle, then move it. But in reality, even if you focus in the middle, it might miss it. So you end up just shooting everything on a tripod and checking every single photo. Connected to a screen and yeah, just checking. Well, that's how I used to shoot on it. I used to tether it up to my laptop always. Mm. Yeah, not anymore. Yeah, times times have changed a little bit. When I, I have a I have an A7R two, um, which never gets used anymore. And um that's I think a similar sort of megapixel range to the yeah. to your one. And I remember seeing the files from that the first time. And I've shot with a Hasselblad a little bit. And you just kind of go like, well, they're pretty simple. Like, close enough. It's close enough that one of them is really easy to use. The the huge benefit of the Hasselblad that people overlook is the leaf shutter. So instead yeah. of having a shutter that opens up, sorry, we're going very technical now. Uh, instead of having a shutter that opens up and down, basically it opens as an aperture ring yeah. and it gives you much nicer flares. So if, if there's okay. a hotspot on the car reflecting, it looks really nice on the Hasselblad. Oh, I've not noticed that. Cause I... yeah. So it's the equivalent of shooting at like F20, Yeah, 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 yeah. but you can have shallow depth of field and do that. Okay. And then you also get the flash benefit, which is, this is like super nerdy photography stuff. But essentially, when we are talking about overpowering the sun, for example, one of the things you can change on your camera is the shutter speed. And if you make the shutter speed faster, so it opens and closes quickly, it's going to let less light through. Now, the beauty of flash is flash is so damn quick that it can sort of get through a full blast even if you start making that shutter speed really slow. The problem you run into with cameras is there's only so fast a shutter speed you can do before it stops letting that flash through. Yeah, before and it's the actual flash of light is uh, slower than yeah, the shutter Yeah, exactly. Speed. And you end up with like a, and it could even be the sensor readout. So you end up with like a black bar across the top or bottom of your picture and you're like, what the hell happened? And that's normally around... One two hundredth, one two fiftieth of a second in. Although cameras are so clever now that they won't let you go above that shutter speed. Yes. So if you say I'm shooting with a flash, it won't let you do it. Yeah. Um, with a leaf shutter, you can shoot like thousands of a second. Uh, yeah, you go to about one five hundredth. So I mean, you got double. I think you can go. In theory, yes, but it doesn't necessarily work. Okay. Because it. Yeah. Th- the problem then runs into the actual length of the flash. And you're not getting the full length of it. Okay. So you won't get a black bar because of the shutter. It's just not as powerful. But you won't get the full power of the flash. And then you get crazy like getting, units that we're do We're getting like... really geeky now, Sam. <laughs> Shall we like... move on to something else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then you get like high speed sync, which sort of lets you do that. I think the light puts out multiple strobes at once. Anyway, yes. <laughs> sorry, um, sorry to anyone that was just listening to that bit. For, yeah, for some cars, we'll, we'll get to some cars at some point. But for the for people that are slightly interested in photography, <laughs> now um, photography chat. The, I guess the the one overriding thing as well. If you bring a Hasselblad or similar sized camera, people think you're serious. People are like, oh, but you are lots serious. Of money. <laughs> and, and the other thing that I learned fairly early on is that if you bring that to a shoot and there's a video crew. You tend to get a bit more time with the car because they're a bit intimidated. Because okay. <laughs> there's always a battle nowadays to save budgets. Yeah. And therefore, there's a battle to have photographers and video crews on the same day. Yeah. And the challenge as a photographer is it's there's one, maybe you with an assistant yeah. versus a video crew of maybe 30 people. Yeah. 
So you tend to not really get the priority on having time with the car and you can't really shoot at the same time. And therefore you have to push to yeah, get the time. Get, you get a lot of like, oh, we've got a video crew in. They've set up a setup and we want some shots of the same setup at the same time. Like, okay, yes, but there's going to be need to be dedicated time for both. Yeah. And as a photographer, you're thinking probably going to more people are going to see the pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course the video crew wouldn't agree but yeah unless unless they're filming it for instagram or something and then yeah. you might get more more views and, and and whatnot social media you used to not be a fan of the old people making youtube videos <laughs> yeah. back in the day george would regularly regularly come in and just like definitely uploaded one yesterday stand, stand <laughs> in front of someone's camera and just stick his head in and ruin the video um but i think times have changed I've, gro- I've grown up a little bit <laughs> for a start i'm now 29 you're now on youtube you're making some youtube videos yeah so i'm well before covid mm-hmm. i decided i'd make a video about my car my lotus which yeah. we'll get into later and i basically did a walk around and talk about it and how it's so modified yeah and it's just ticked over two hundred thousand views that's a lot of people. So yeah, people seem to like it. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I'll make another video and see how that goes. So I went on a road trip, and I drove through the night to go and see Power Slide Lover. Yeah. In Italy, and the first video I did, the actual all it is is me driving through the night in my car. <laughs> um, we didn't really achieve anything. Yeah. Uh, apart from getting to the Dolomites, of course. Yeah. That did about 70,000 views, I think. Yeah. You're like, this YouTube stuff's pretty easy. Let's do some more. Yeah. And then the next part of that was driving Power Slide Lovers Ferrari SP2 Monza in yeah. the snow. Yeah. And I wasn't expecting this. Uh, <laughs> he very kindly just threw me the key. And it was it was snowing. How was how was that, driving that car? It's a, it's a as you know, it's a big car. It's worth yeah. a lot of money. <laughs> In the snow. Told me I probably wasn't insured before I drove it. <laughs> I wasn't going to say no anyway. Um, it it was actually okay. I, Ferrari electronics are very clever. Mm. So sport mode, absolutely fine. Race mode, a l- little bit of poo came out. <laughs> uh, it, it wants to go very sideways very quickly. Um, and obviously being someone else's car, you, you respect that. Yeah, um, But just... Being out in the open, in the freezing cold, in the mountains. Did you have a helmet it? on? No. No, I didn't, chilly. didn't have one. Uh, had a hat on, luckily. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, it's about the coldest I've ever been. <laughs> but I, it was just the best moment. It was so good. So that video did pretty well as well. Yeah. Uh, and then COVID happened and I kind of gave up on the videos for a while. Uh, mm. I did one video. I actually went out to the Geneva Motor Show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it got cancelled. After it had been cancelled uh, <laughs> and did a walk around, which was a very amateur, early Shmi 150 style video. Mm. Um, nice and shaky. And, I mean, that got picked up by loads of newspapers online and da- Daily Mail, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, what you really aspire to. <laughs> um, Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So that was kind of that. And then I gave it a break for a while. And I have recently decided to extensively modify my car again. Not that it needed anymore. Okay, so let's talk about let's talk about your the, Lotus. The car. What is it? So it's a Lotus Exige from 2014, Exige right. S. So it's the V6 one, three and a half litre V6 uh, with a supercharger. And so what's this? What power is that standard? 350 horsepower. Okay. So which is not it's not slow. Yeah. Um, it's plenty quick enough. Uh, it weighs about 1,200 kilos. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a fairly lightweight car. It's heavier than most people expect of a Lotus, but the engine is heavy. Yeah. Um, now it has 460 horsepower. <laughs> it does not need any more power. It has plenty. 460. So, and what did you do to get that? Uh, so it went out to Como Tech in Germany and had their tuning kit, which is manifolds, sports cat, huge carbon intake, charge cooler, and then pulley and map. So they do a kit for 460 horsepower. Yeah. And- very reliable luckily okay um, so i've done that i've i mean this car has almost everything changed on it i worked out the only original things are the doors and the roof okay okay so because you've done I, every now and then i'll see a picture of like something else you've modified on it what's what's been your reasons for for modifying that car and going down that route over time Rather than selling it and buy something else. Or, buy something you know. better, yeah. <laughs> uh, or different or whatever, yeah. So I got to a certain stage with the modding and then Lotus bought out the 430 Cup. Yeah. And I drove that. I was like, this is brilliant. But my car had already had quite a lot done to it at that stage. So it, it was already the top spec you could get a Lotus. Yeah. And then Lotus bought out a really good one. But the chassis was the same. So my thinking was, well, why don't I just get those bits and put them on my car? Yeah. So I've got the same spec dampers and various other bits that bring it up to that level. Um, And I've got even more going on soon, i.e. the facelift. Um, (laughs) The whole body. Uh, (laughs) But I'd done quite a lot of unique stuff, So especially on the interior. So I got D-Class, who are in Woking, uh, and they do various work for McLaren Special Operations mm. and that kind of thing. So they're very talented people to trim the whole interior. I added Ferrari F12 air vents. That's I'd... what I, I knew. That's what they were. Yeah. Yeah. So, although I like to say LaFerrari as well. Okay. Sounds yeah. more premium. Yeah. I didn't like the standard plastic air vents. So I always thought, I mean, I don't know what they're from. They could be off a Rover. Yeah. Never liked them. Wanted something better. They started, the project started with Mercedes-Benz air vents yeah. from an A-class. Mm-hmm. And then I impulse bought some F12 air vents off eBay. Okay. 
as, as you do. Yeah. It cost me a huge amount of money. Uh, <laughs> and they happen to fit. <laughs> what, as in, like, literally you just, like, rip out the old ones so, and the new ones fit? So I had to do quite a lot of modification to the dash to make the Mercedes vents fit. Right. But when I bought the Ferrari ones, they went straight in to the new size that I'd oh, made. okay. So it just happened to work perfectly. <laughs> I had to cut up one of them because the three middle vents on an F12 are a different size to the outer ones. Okay. So I had to take a grinder to it. And I think they're made of titanium or something. They're very hard to cut. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, who knew? <laughs> uh, kind of thing you'd never find out. Yeah. No, it's all metal. Uh, they're quite heavy. So yeah, that was that was a big project. Uh, what else have I done on the car? Seats. What have you done? Uh, do you brakes? Do you brakes? Yeah, done brakes. I've done all the performance stuff, really. I don't need anything else on the performance side of things, really. Uh, this winter, I'm going a bit aero crazy. Yeah. So this winter's project, which I started <laughs> in August, because uh, I got a bit too excited, um, is take the whole body off the car. Right. Small job. Yeah, already done that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then I've bought the facelift clams. The clam is effectively the whole front end or the whole rear end. Can you just get those from Lotus? You could do, but I wasn't going to pay those prices. Okay, so, you can, so someone else makes them? Uh, no, they're official ones that I got. Okay. Um, one was in a crash, yeah. so it's got some damage, which we'll repair. The other one, I don't know how they got it. Uh, doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, so I, anyway. There's a Lotus I, down the road. I got them. some bits. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's in primer. Oh, okay. so it's it's come stripped. out of Lotus somehow. But anyway, I've got those parts, and then I'm designing a rear wing. Okay, from scratch to my own design. So it's like the 992 GT3, or more, okay. more <laughs> judging by the size of it and the GT GT3 RS prototypes. It's more that sort of size. <laughs> okay, um, so you're going to have like an over. It's a swan, swan neck, swan neck, top mounted. Uh, very high and then are you going to put some sort of dive planes on the front um it's going one step further so it's got a front splitter coming from como tech okay and that has diffuser tunnels oh okay um and then we've got arch louvers we're putting in that we will make work basically yeah. by having proper slits in them and then we'll add a vent behind the front wheels as well and you reckon that should I'm hoping it balances out, but the rear wing is height adjustable, so we can position it in the airflow, and then it's also uh, pitch adjustable. Okay, so you can have some fun days. And we know the figures that, if in clean air, the wing profile produces. Right. So we can ballpark the right sort of amount. And also, I'm not racing. (laughs) I want it to look cool. I want it to be good on a track day if I do another one. Yeah. The running costs are obscene on track. One thing that someone might get pushed towards a Lotus is they're reasonably light. And I guess this is the, this is the point that it comes in there. Reasonably light. They're not super light. They're reasonably light. That you could take it to a track day, run it for ages, and it won't destroy brakes and tyres. But has that been the case? My driving style isn't great <laughs> for that. <laughs> Um, I quite like going sideways, so that's not great for tyres. Okay, so that's... I mean, how how much does your GT3 RS weigh? It's got to be 1350. 1350. So I'm only 150 yeah. kilograms lighter, but the parts are cheaper, of course. Yeah. So if I go through a set of brake discs, I've got bigger 
great discs than standard, but I'm probably looking at £900 plus £300, £400 for the pads. Oh, that's not too bad. It's not too bad. The only thing is uh, I will do that in four track days. Wow. Yeah, so that's not great. That's not very good at um, all. But I think it, that is due to heat management. Okay, so, which is often the case. Yeah, and I, I am quite hard on brakes on track because I will... Brake. Dri- <laughs> yeah, drive like I think I'm a racing driver. Um, that's what you're meant to do on track. Yeah, yeah, I mean, in theory. Um, I think some people take it easy, but... But people buy all of these track spec prepped supercars and whatnot. Yeah. And then they drive them around track, don't they? So, But this is something I realised with track days a little while ago. And I started pouring money into mods that would make me quicker on track. Okay, yes. And then I realised it doesn't matter. It's just for fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally for fun. Like, if I'm half a second quicker, what difference does it make? Am I having more fun? I mean... The limited slip diff is the difference in that because yeah. that did make it more fun. Um, was that quite a big difference? Yes, massive. Uh, and it, I think there's two sides to it. One, it does massive skids really nicely now. Yep. Uh, which I obviously love. Yep. Uh, you get booted off. But <laughs> quite often, yeah. I tend to save that for the last lap of the day. Um, good time when I'm happy to go home. Yeah, I'd be like, I'm, I'll, I'll just go straight off. Don't worry. Also <laughs> avoid the Jonathan Palmer circuits. Okay. Um yeah, Silverstone's a bit more relaxed. But the second part is the traction out of corners. Mm. And especially, I tend to do the first few laps on a track day with the traction control on. Yeah. And even with the traction control on, just the drive out of a low-speed corner is so much better with the limited slip okay. diff. Yeah. And before, you would have the traction kicking in to try and control that in a spinning wheel, um, especially if you're quite aggressive, which I'd say I probably And I have. guess also you're you're running another... 100 horsepower of the standard and yeah. a bunch more torque and whatnot. Yeah, I do have bigger tyres uh, and run Cup 2, which is obviously, get, and better dampers, which has given me a load more grip. But I still would have spun the inside wheel if yeah. trying to exit from one of the hairpins at Silverstone, for example. Yeah. So it does help. Um, and then also, if I do end up in a slide, it's so much more predictable. Yeah. And I do tend to end up in a slide. <laughs> <laughs> These things happen. It's yeah. Like- that's 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 what these days annoyingly like it's funny everyone goes to track days basically because they want to learn to do skids or do skids but you're not allowed to do skids on track days yeah it's like you go to the track to try and get away from the stuff you're not allowed to do on the road because it's stupid to do on the road and then you're not allowed to do it (laughs) same with noise it's like what's the point of going to track then yeah yeah you get your your track spec sort of road car supercar whatever you put loud pipes on it because it sounds great. Then you go to a racetrack and you're not allowed on the track. So you take the exhaust back off and then you like, okay, let's start to push this car and then do some skids and then you get chucked off the track. It's it's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't really make much sense. I guess you could go to a drift day. Are there many drift days I anymore? I have done. How I, was that? Where I did went, you go? I went to the Rockingham drift days. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've never felt so out of place. <laughs> Because I turned up in the Exige and the Exige starts at about 40 grand. Yeah. Everyone else seemed to be in slightly cheaper cars. Yeah, probably things that cost less than a grand. Yeah, almost everyone. There were a few nice things there, to be fair. Uh, some people have put a lot of effort into them. Like there was an E-type drift car, which was pretty damn cool. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but over, like, I was definitely the only mid-engine car. Yeah. And the Exige doesn't have an awful lot of steering lock. Yeah. That is the big downfall as a drift car. But... 
I survived the day. The marshals <laughs> were very good in not putting me on track with other people. Yeah, that's... And that was a bit of a relief because you don't want to be spinning near someone. No. It just gets quite expensive. And I I did a drift day at Rockingham, but it was like a learn to drift type thing. And I was driving around in like, I don't know, Sylvia's or something. Yeah. Uh, a, a bunch of different cars. And actually, if you're just drifting, it's just like literally anything is awesome fun. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And it's a total... It's just stupid doing it in a car like an Exige, if we're honest. But it also means... Uh, so the original reason for doing those drift days is I wanted to go and do a video where I drifted up a mountain pass and close okay. the mountain pass. Yeah. And I had funding to do it. Someone had agreed to sponsor it. Mm. I was like, I probably need to go and actually Le- learn on practice. track and just check that I can get the tolerances right. And it, it made me realise I'm not as good as I thought I am. <laughs> I think I probably could have done it, but it wouldn't have been that impressive on a camera. Because everyone every now and then might have like drifted around a roundabout or out of a corner or something. Speak for yourself, Sam. And I'd never do such a thing. On a closed track. And um, <laughs> like, why, why, why would you do this? Sort of Private road and all that. But there's a big difference between that and what we see. People make it look so easy on film, like someone like Chris Harris or whatever, just like yeah. sending it through something at 100 miles an hour with minimal gaps either side. So I actually did a shoot with Chris once, mm. and it was at Wysak of the first generation 991 GT3 RS. So it was a purple car? Yes. I remember this video. Yeah. Um, Chris is so accurate that he could go through a corner... And you you could stand on a cone on the exit and you'd be able to trust him. <laughs> and he would just be fully lit sideways and you, you could stand within a metre and know you're going to be okay. Yeah. I don't know any other driver like that. Yeah. I imagine imagine if you took some pro drifters, they, they, yeah. they'd be pretty good. But like, other than that, yeah, like the level of and precision... Some of the Hollywood stunt drivers as well, actually. Yeah. I um, imagine those guys are pretty... Yeah pretty on it um and and the the thing i think with someone like chris or or those guys is they can do that in any car yeah and chris had only just got in that car and driven it for the first time (laughs) yes he's got a lot of seat time in porsches but it's still impressive yeah i think we all like all have the dream of being able to do that yeah but i like whenever i get a new car i i have minimal desire to take my sports cars on track now really apart from the odd day every now and then and that's mainly i want to know what it's like on the limit before you can drive it quicker on the road before just like yes like what's this car going to do if you get it wrong yeah like it's i think everybody in any car should at least try and work that out at some point in time somewhere reasonably safe yeah it's like when it snows you want to like brake to see how the car's going to react exactly just give the throttle a poke to see what's going to happen yeah like it's just part of being a inquisitive driver isn't it yeah exactly you're like if i give this full beans and it goes starts to go sideways will it just suddenly snap yeah if it's you know like one wheel spins up and that's it you've basically done a 360 into coming out of maybe a an event in a mustang or something yeah it does happen <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's I think it's it's essential. It's just annoying that it's not that easy. The the days you can do it, which I don't know whether you've... I guess, yes, you will have been on a day like this. 
like a media press yes. type rented the track private whatever day i used to have a lot more of those when i did a bit more magazine stuff yeah uh, unfortunately that was never when i had the lotus but it was always good when you could just go and, and like i would be in a mini which was my first car <laughs> And I would be going into corners at like 90 mile an hour and lifting and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> no, no regard for the consequences yeah. back when I was that young. But yeah, but then you, how you learn. You learn things, don't you? And I think that's, that's one of the things that I, I would love to be able to do more. And I think it's an annoying thing about cars versus maybe other activities. It's like to learn those sorts of things. If you want to get to Chris Harris's level of drifting, you need to be able to put the time in in a variety of cars it's just about seat time isn't and it? it's like seat time which unfortunately costs money and then also it's you can't just go to track days and drift because you get kicked off it's not allowed yeah so how do you do it you go to a drift day like the rockingham one which yeah doesn't really exist anymore and you're not going to take your ferrari f12 to one of those are you unless you're a real baller yeah unless you're someone like me who's <laughs> stupid uh, <laughs> i would i would take my so when i went to do the rockingham day in uh this sort of stuff i took my G- I, I couldn't have got this more wrong right i turned up at this event <laughs> in your gt3 rs. rs and i get out the car and what i then managed to do is lock i took my helmet out of the car which was a carbon painted helmet with like aero <laughs> bits on it and the <laughs> And then I managed to lock the key to my GT3RS in the frunk oh dear. of the Porsche. So I'm there. I'm like, hi, nice to meet you. Yes, I'm the bell end in the GT3RS. Yes, this is my fancy carbon painted helmet that's annoyingly worth more than this car we're about to drive or whatever. And yes, I was getting abuse about that. But I've also locked my key in the car. <laughs> so I had to get the AA to come out oh and they dear. managed to like whatever get in break in and get get all that stuff but at the very end of the day i said can i take my car around the course oh nice and they'd set it up it was in back in the days when they'd done it in the car park with cones and whatnot and so just did like a couple of minutes of having to go sliding around or whatever because it is totally different sliding something like that with big sticky 325 cup twos yeah versus about your commitment yeah like a lot more commitment and then the guy that was running it was like oh can i can i have a go and i, I was like yeah no sorry like everyone was like but do you know who he is he's like a drift legend i was like honestly i couldn't care less those tires are so damn expensive and i've literally pretty much just ruined them yeah. like i will not be able to drive home i don't want to buy another set like so i did two days at rockingham drift days mm. the first one was on the circuit yeah which was actually a lot more fun because you had a bit more space and a bit more speed. Yeah. Um, the second one was in the car park. Mm. And that really didn't suit the Exige <laughs> at all because you need momentum really because it's got so much rear end grip yeah. that you're trying to overcome and not great front end grip. Yeah. it's I mean, it's got a small front tyre, 215 compared mm. to 285 on the rear. So you need to use all the power, but you also need momentum to get it going. So... And does it have much lock? No, terrible. Which you realise when you get in some of these drift cars with like loads of angle, you're like, oh, this is great. Like, so easy. You just keep, <laughs> keep adding more lock. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, the Exige. So I did a day, uh, I drove the Exige 410 and Evora 410 back to back at Hethel. And that was the first time I'd driven an Exige. 
and it was like here you go have go around the track and try and film something at the same time whilst working out which ways it goes yeah um and i found the exceed steering really difficult to get used to mainly because i spent so much time in cars with hydraulic steering racks so, so the Evora felt pretty normal. So there's two things about the Exige that people struggle with. It's sort of getting a feel for what the car is doing due to the steering. Mm. And just uh, and then there's also the responsiveness of the engine, which isn't great, but you can learn it. Yeah. So I've done so many miles that I'm totally used to it, can heel and toe fine. Loads of people will keep their car six months, still can't heel and toe, so sell it. Yeah. And it, <laughs> it is possible it's, and that that's i think something anyone that gets in one of those cars any but, any of those cars but i love that because i've had to learn it yeah and it's take it like, it's not easy but that's half the fun of it yeah i think yeah it's it's something you can learn and i know when i've driven one i go okay i can see that this is doable it just i'm gonna need to spend some time and when i first got out. the car i did not feel comfortable in it and the way it handled mm. And I didn't really, I'd come from a Catrum, so I didn't feel that comfortable with the mid-engined yeah. handling <laughs> dynamics. Now, I just find it so natural and I can fiddle with the dampers and actually understand what they do and get the handling exactly how I want it. Like I've even got to the stage of changing spring rates because I want a more compliant ride and yeah. I understand the dynamics of it because I've done so many blooming miles in it. Yeah. Because and there's a difference between doing a certain number of miles and like a certain number of conscious miles as well, isn't there? Like, yeah. I'm trying to feel. Yes. X, Y, and Z. This is what I'm like. Actually looking for something. Yeah. I found recently, and I, I had a few Paris cars recently, all like front wheel drive, small hot track, hot hatch type stuff, like Fiesta ST edition and things like that, and and the GR Yaris, and I. I think this this has come from driving the Radical a lot, which is like unassisted steering. It's all quite like fine control in terms of the difference between being on the track and off the track, even though it doesn't necessarily look like that in the car. Yeah. Um, you pick up a lot about the, the steering and you can't get in a car now and I go, well, the XYZ feels weird, feels different, whatever. And then you come back and someone else is like, no, the steering's great. I'm like, oh. It depends what you're comparing it to. It, that's, that, that's it. Yeah. Like, and I find that quite a lot because I get to drive quite a few interesting cars. I'm mm. quite lucky. And I never get back into the Exige and go, oh, I wish I had that car instead. Yeah. Never. That's interesting because you you've driven, I would say, probably a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. GT3 RSs, supercar, like loads of supercars, 675 LT. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, I've even driven the hypercars, like LaFerrari, P1, 918, driven those but the exige is so raw that it offers a different experience so it doesn't give you a direct comparison yeah i would never sell it basically because there's nothing Nothing. that i would go into especially for the money Mm. because i mean my car was 40 grand admittedly i've spent gt3 rs money on it now um (laughs) but that's over a long period of time yeah i've had it five years and a bit of a journey yeah and and the way I see it is I've got five years of enjoyment yeah. doing the project. It's not just about the driving, although I've probably driven it more than anyone else as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's like, that is a thing, isn't it? Like I always used to look at people that would buy a car and then modify it and spend normally a stupid amount. Anyone that modifies a car spends too much money on their car, pretty much. Yeah. Like, 
I think everyone would agree that they, that's what happens. Yeah, thank you. Um, but then I sort of would go, well, why would you do that? Why not you just save up the money and then buy a better car? Now, there is, there is some, there's some crossover in all of these things and there's times when people should absolutely do that. Yeah. But I sort of missed out on the, yeah, but it's a lot of fun in the meantime. Yeah, and it's not just that. My car isn't worth anything else for modifying it. So yeah. I've had all this fun. Still not worth that much. Yeah. So the upgrade cost to the... I mean, a, a car of similar performance, and we're talking GT3 RS or above, Yeah. is another 100 grand. Yeah. And then you're the, driving a 150 grand car or whatever. Yeah. So it's it's not worth it to me. Yeah. Unfortunately. No, I totally, like, I, so, I totally get that. And I also grew up with my dad having a Caterham, right? Hmm. So I aspire to cars like that. I don't aspire to the okay. supercars quite so much. So would you, and you wouldn't replace it for a Caterham? I, I did a video on this <laughs> recently. Uh, so I borrowed the Caterham 620S. Right. Which I think is the pick of the range. Okay. Because it's got a silly amount of power, 310 horsepower. It weighs about 600 kilos and it has the five-speed manual. Right. And the sequential box in the 620R, to me, is too extreme for the road. Okay. And it, it hurts your hand <laughs> when you change gear. So that gets annoying pretty quick. Yeah. And again, I don't care about that last tenth on a track. So, And it is fun for a bit, the sequential. Yeah. Like it's, but it, I think it's more novelty factor than it is actually being fun. brilliant. Yeah. Um, and the, the Five-speed manual in a Caterham is brilliant. I think it's an MX-5 box. I think so, yeah. Um, but the feel is amazing. Like, I don't think I've driven a car with a better gearbox. It's Caterhams are just one of those things that like every now and then I'll drive a Caterham. Not as often as I would like. Yeah. I have an absolute blast. And then I kind of give it back and go, I should probably buy one of those because that was wicked. But if I owned one, I would drive like an absolute lunatic the entire time. Yeah, and I used to own a Caterham. So I had a 150 horsepower one, which mm. is obviously half the power of the 620S. Yeah, yeah. And on the road, it was perfect until the moment you needed to overtake someone. And then okay. you realise that it's actually about the same speed as a Mini Cooper S. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. So you have to do that whole build up to the overtake thing, yeah. which if you've had a very quick car like the Exiges or Ferraris and stuff like that you don't have to do when you're in the Exige when I overtake I will pull out have a look yeah. and go uh, maybe I can overtake boom done yeah you don't have to commit yeah five minutes earlier yeah and you, that straight. if you can see that space you can overtake in a fast car yeah it's the same as motorbikes really it's that kind of level of performance which is really nice to have yeah so when you don't have it it's a bit of a shock and I bought I sold my Caterham and bought it back. <laughs> Realised that it just wasn't quick enough for me anymore. And I'd outgrown it a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, they, I, I think at, at some point in time, I'll have a Caterham. I don't know. I, I, what I would like to do is just borrow them every now and then. Yeah, and I live so close to the Caterham Gatwick showroom now. Yeah. That I keep... Can I just... <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. I'll take some photos. Let me. I, I will own another one, though. That is... To me, that's my two-car garage. 
Sorry if I ruined a bit later. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> it's not, that's not one of the questions, so it's oh, fine. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, so you would have hardcore and even hardcorer. Yeah. Yeah, but I... And something practical. Yeah, I don't see them as that hardcore, weirdly. I, Fair I, enough. It's all relative, right? So when I had my Catrum, I decided to drive it to Croatia from london yeah i remember this it took me two and a half weeks and one <laughs> of those days it rained going through germany one of the most epic rainstorms i've ever seen <laughs> and i just had the half hood which which actually is pretty good because it while a little bit of water comes in as you'd expect it means it doesn't steam up yeah thank god um my friend was in an aerial atom so i felt pretty good about myself <laughs> for most of that day <laughs> with a heated windscreen whilst he was yeah he was in an atom trying to have cigarettes to keep him going oh dear. Uh, yeah he had a bad day um so it, it's all relative true i think they're surprisingly cozy yeah and okay. when i went from the catrum to the lotus it's like a luxury car <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's what you're used to it is i always like n- now having the e208 it's actually a really great reset for performance yeah because i drive that quite a lot and then when I get back in one of the faster cars, they still feel fast. Whereas, so I drove that, the Zenvo TSRS. Have you driven that? No, but I went up the hill at Goodwood in it. Oh, okay. Recently. Yeah. So pretty quick. Very quick. <laughs> very quick. <laughs> very, very quick. But didn't feel, to me, that didn't feel that quick. It felt quick, but it didn't okay. feel that quick. But then I wind back. And for the the two months before, I've been driving, I've been the driving A12. an A12, yeah. which is a very quick car. Yeah, so, so there's not an awful lot of difference in so, that performance. There's about an E208 in, yeah, yeah, in difference. Probably. <laughs> um, so you get used to that so easily. But then having, at least like coming back in and driving something for a bit, it helps reset it because performance you do just get used to you just get used to straight line performance yeah and as you get older i think well, we've both been very lucky to drive some serious bits of kit and it does reset what you expect of certain cars yeah so i mean i remember when i was 19 and i got lent by the lexus press office i can't remember exactly what it is but it was a convertible lexus potentially the worst handling car ever <laughs> i was so damn excited and it felt so quick to me coming yeah. from my first car <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it just shows how you change and also my exige is so fast and over the last couple of years i've been like this is too fast for the road yeah and it's actually a bit of a shame in a way because when it was 350 horsepower in a way it was better yeah i mean i wouldn't change it back but it's tricky that one isn't it because it's like on track you want everything you're just like i want more power because then i'll have and more torque and whatever and i can do bigger skids and all that stuff but on the road like like with my gt3 rs i've had it sort of long enough now eight years nine years something like that and when i first got it i drove a four liter just before i bought it i'd driven uh what was it 997 gen 1 gen 2 and then a four liter back to back i did a silverstone experience day which is oh, okay. wicked I, I don't know whether you can still do something like that basically like drive the gt3s bought my car but i remember the four liter having like a chunk more mid-range punch yeah at the bottom 
and then drove my car a lot, did a bunch of Alps trips and whatnot, which is, I think, when you really start to realize that low range torque could be really useful. Like, let's say, second gear hairpin or yeah. you're, you're in that middle bit of... Means either, you don't have to change down, basically. You're either in first, but then you've hit the top of first kind of before you come out of the corner or you're in second and you've dropped out of the power. And I was like, oh, no, I just want more, more power, more power, more power. Yeah, I would do another 100 horsepower, whatever. And then as time goes on, I'm like, well, I don't think I necessarily... I don't want more power. I actually just want less grip. Yeah. So yeah. I'm looking at the options... And I run my Exige on winter tyres. Nice. And the difference between Cup 2 in 285 on the rear for summer compared to a Pirelli winter tyre yeah. in 245 on the <laughs> rear is pretty dramatic. Of course, the conditions are different as well. Yeah. But it's so much fun on the winter tyres. It doesn't look great. Yeah. Uh, but there's more to a car than just looks sometimes. Yeah. And nice. it's so much fun in winter. Have you thought about running it on just like winter tires all year round? I think I'd get through them too quick. Okay, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> need some, I, could, like... I could run narrower, but it doesn't look great. Like, I really like the stance of it. Mm. Oh, I've got new wheels coming as well. Uh, that's, that's another part of the project. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's a tricky one, that one. Like, I, so my GT3 has Cup 2s on it. And when I get through those at some point, whatever, I would like to do a less grippy tyre. So it's probably go yeah PS4S, but even that I don't think is much less grippy yeah. than the Cup Two. It just lasts longer and is better in the rain. Like, yeah. So I don't know whether I go a little bit narrower or something as well. It'd be quite fun. I think it would be fun. Yeah, or have a spare set of wheels, which is what I do. So you can change. That would, that would be nice. That's the real solution. Yeah, have a winter setup. Yeah, and a summer setup, and run whichever one you want. Yeah, I mean around. you could run winter tires on the GT3 RS. You just need to protect it underneath yeah i think it would be all right like my old 911 yeah. the yellow one that that's not all that's on winter tires all year round now <laughs> i've just left them on <laughs> and like why not it's it's it does get it's, a bit it's, like it's good you're saving the pennies spongy <laughs> but it's it's less grip in the summer yeah, yeah. and it's it's a and bit you more get fun. used to that body movement yeah in, or sidewall movement and it's not a problem, especially in a car like that. Yeah, it's We've fine. Got loads of movement anyway. I think the first the first time I put it on winter tires, the guys were like, "Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit weird, like yeah. when it's warm." And then for the I don't know whatever it was, a couple of weeks, I was like, "This is a bit odd." And then you just didn't you do it and then go straight into snow tour? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I drove it from the conversion to yeah. straight to to Sweden in the winter. Uh, uh, of course, a trip we both did together. Yeah. Which was interesting. In terms of, okay, your favourite road trips you've done. Okay. Um, that was certainly up there. Um, I can probably give you a top five. So that that is up there. So snow tour where we went to Sweden and drove all the way up. Did a load of ice lakes. I was with the Carabba in his yeah. uh, AMG GT3 oh, thing. TG3 as he calls it. It's like a AMG GT with a G3 body kit on it. Ish. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but really nice handling balance for on an ice yeah. lake. We started tyres. Yeah, and it just sat at full opposite lock perfectly. <laughs> In fact, there was a moment he woke up and I was on the opposite side of the road overtaking someone sideways. <laughs> uh, lots of adventures like that. I um, heavily recommend. I, it- ice driving or driving, even I think I have more fun, depends on the tyres, but driving on the snowy roads... Than on the ice track. 
Yeah. To an extent. No. Uh, <laughs> it depends on your tyres, though. If you've yeah. got studs, ice track. Yeah. Yeah, I think the problem with the ice track without studs is it's too slow. You don't have enough grip. And, and it's it, just a bit frustrating. It's a bit grip. like when you're on summer tyres on snow. Yeah. It's just pointless. Yeah, you Whereas, get to a certain amount of angle and you can't come back and it's not like... Yeah, well, as in the Lotus, when I'm on winter tyres, when it snowed this year, mm. you come off the power and it just grips straight up. Yeah. So And you brake and it actually stops. And it makes it so much fun because you can actually have a bit of speed in the snow while it's yeah. all moving around on you. It's brilliant. It's, the, it's so much fun. I, I, I wish we had... Lots more snow. More snow in the winter. <laughs> like everyone would get used to it and be fine and whatever. But like to have a couple of months of the year just full snow everywhere. Yeah, that'd be so much fun. Yeah, it would be. I mean, I'd go everywhere slower, but I would have more fun. Yeah, so much more fun. When it snowed in London, I took the old. The only car I had that was on winters was the nine eleven. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I do in winter with the Exige. Yeah. So I don't drive my daily car anymore. Yeah, it becomes the Exige only. <laughs> And I just went, I had an absolute of whale of a time. And people look at you funny. Yeah. And they're like, why are you bringing that classic car as you like drive past them up a hill? As yeah. Going why backwards. are you overtaking my Land Rover? Because <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can. So, so snow tour, so sort of Sweden, winter. Yeah. Basically any car, that, that trip is wicked. Yeah. So the following one, which is related, is the desert tour. Yeah. Um, which i didn't go on that was in saudi yeah so we spent two weeks driving around saudi in nissan patrols which was just nuts and land cruisers um so we went into the empty quarter for three days i think which is a very empty desert believe it or not right there's like Um, no phone signal no nothing no nothing sat phones in case we need it not that i think that would have done any good um (laughs) (laughs) you see the relics of the cars in there that are broken down and they just leave them because there's nothing else you can yeah. do. Um, not getting a tow. No, and no one will probably find you. Um, but, I mean, we were in a big group, so I felt fairly safe, to be fair. Yeah, with people that knew what they were doing. Yeah. Um, but there were times, and, and actually, it's an area they do the Dakar rally in now. Okay. Uh, I feel like we preempted that one. Um, <laughs> I feel like we tested the route for them. Yeah, there were times when we were doing... 70, 80 miles an hour over sand. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, what are we doing? This is dangerous. But the reality is, is there's nothing to hit. Yeah. And if you're on a flat bit of sand with tyre tracks, you know, like lots of tyre tracks. Yeah. You know you're on an okay route. And if the car goes sideways, you just let it happen. You just yeah. move your line across. <laughs> and these guys are good drivers. Like, they're clearly used to it. But it's still terrifying. Yeah, that's... that's... I remember first, I said first snow tour. Yeah, first snow tour. So it was when I was in the yellow 911 and realising at one point in time we were driving at night. It's like minus 25 <laughs> down some roads that were like, just like middle of nowhere. Yeah. And you realise the pace has gone. I think that day, the first day we went from being in Stockholm, which was like tarmac, but bits of ice. Yeah, wet roads mainly. To half and half, which is, pretty much the sketchiest yeah when it's like ice and tarmac to full-on snow then oh, yeah a layer of ice yeah and then a layer of ice underneath and you you drive for a certain amount of time and then you realize that it's fine you yeah. have grip 
Well, what's inter- I found it really interesting when we got to the ice lake. You realise you're actually driving quite quick on this ice lake. Yeah. Having, having driven at like 30 miles an hour on the road before, <laughs> you suddenly realise, oh, I could be doing 70 and I'll be fine. Yeah. And like, I remember one section where we were middle of nowhere, sort of country road, and, and looking down and being like, we're doing like 70 miles an hour. Yeah. And like, it feels fine. Yeah. It's like, how good the tyres are. But the tyres are good. You're obviously, you're accustomed, you get used to leaving more space in the person in front because stopping is more of a problem. Yeah, and you didn't have studs. No. And I, more to the point, the M6 didn't have studs. Yeah, so we, had- we were keeping a wide berth of that. Yeah, there was an M6 on quite wide, sporty tyres that didn't work. Couldn't stop so good or accelerate so good. The 911 actually <laughs> was the, pretty It's got grippy. the weight over the rear, so, and it's easy to feel everything which makes all the difference yeah yeah you can feel if you're locking up but actually on snow locking up is doesn't make much difference really yeah you still slow down yeah hopefully (laughs) (laughs) apart from when it's sheet ice and then you're just like well that's it we're going (laughs) pull the handbrake whatever (laughs) try and work it out okay so desert tour yeah uh, and what was also good about that was actually meeting all the normal (laughs) saudi people because you realise going around Saudi, and this was before tourist visas came in, mm. that no one's really explored this area. Yeah, that's crazy. And it felt really special to see some of these places as a Westerner for the first time almost. Or yeah. not the first time, but not many people had had that opportunity. So it felt pretty special. So it looked, the, some of the photos and stuff of just like the places you went and the things that it looked unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, so unique. And we had very special access thanks to the people that invited us. Yeah. So that, again, made it even more special. Yeah, it looked cool. It looked, it looked super cool. Yeah. For those that are still with us, I just sent the power cable flying across the room, which may have removed all of the audio. Anyway, we were pretty much near the end. So this is going to be a very short podcast. This is going to be all of... It's going to, it's going to roll around one one question. George Williams, what's your five-car garage? Oh, uh, after talking about my Exige so much, I've kind of got to put that in there, haven't I? <laughs> uh, so my Exige. Yeah. Uh, I wish it didn't have any miles on it so that I could start again. Yeah. Um, Kate from 620S. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I, I just like lightweight stuff. Yeah. McLaren F1. Mm. gtr or normal normal oh so i'm quite lucky that i've been in a few f1s um nice been in faisal's one which is rowan atkinson's old car and in fact recently i had to drive that round the lake road at mclaren oh so i was doing a shoot for him he couldn't make it yeah so and no one else was insured to drive it nor was i um <laughs> i was just more confident than anyone yeah, else like, i'll do it yeah <laughs> it's not very often you get a chance to drive an f1 um so i did the slowest drive you've ever seen around the lake road nice thinking what would happen if i put my foot down and put it into the lake <laughs> luckily that didn't happen um because i'm not an idiot yeah um so yeah I, and i've also been out with him when he was driving it quicker than he should have done okay yeah obviously within the speed limits yeah um and the induction noise oh really of that car i don't unless you've been in one when it's on full chat you don't know about induction noise (laughs) because it's right by your ear yeah it is so loud there's not really any exhaust noise yeah it's all induction noise the only way i could describe it is imagine two m3 csl 
engines <laughs> with your head inside the air boxes. Okay. <laughs> That's about the only way I could describe it. Yeah. Um, so quite something. Yeah, very special. And it's it's really fast. Like, even by modern standards. Like, I've been in things like Chiron. Mm. And Chiron's obviously really fast. Yeah. But that, that F1 picks up. And it's naturally aspirated. It's even at low revs, it picks up. Mm. Like, low revs, high speed, it picks up. Um, so, yeah. And being able to fit two friends in is pretty cool. Super cool. In fact, Luke was in one of the seats. Luke Gibbertson, the tallest man ever. He's, he's, he's a, he's, he's a, he's a and, big person. And he fitted. Um, so... Yeah, it's one hell of a car. Um I've been in a I've been in two GTRs actually. Yeah. One was long tail on the road mm-hmm. and the other one was Andy's yeah. short tail GTR, the Lark one. And they're amazing, but for some reason they were as I expected. Okay. They're a race car. Yeah. And they feel like a race car. And I think because of that, it's sort of just it's a race car is the experience you get out of it. Yeah. Whereas the F1, it's a road car, but it's like no other road car <laughs> apart from the T50 soon. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, the F1 road car is, is it's just amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. LM? Maybe the LM engine in a normal one. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't think I'd want the Aero. No, because you can have like an that. LM that's not... I know. Cause they've all got the high downforce They've all got the high downforce kit. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Um, cool thing. Cool thing. So that's three cars. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you probably need a practical car. You probably do need a practical car. It's got to like, fit into your life. So Yeah. So, I mean, at the moment, I have a C-Class diesel for mm-hmm. going to shoots. I don't like filling up with fuel very often, so it's really good because it does like six, 700 miles on a tank. Okay. So I mean, it's pretty good. It'd be nice if it was a bit bigger. Okay. So, so maybe- what would you have? Something diesel and boring and relaxing that I don't even try and speed in. Yeah. Uh, maybe E-Class Estate. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Porsche McCann, something like that. Don't want it to be too big, but yeah, it's really boring, isn't it? But uh, it's, I, I think there's a time and a place for just getting in a comfy car and doing some miles. Like. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it as it's only five cars, five cars is actually fairly challenging. It is. But I think you then need something that's full-on race car. Yeah. And Radical is kind of the obvious thing, because I think if you go LMP car, <laughs> that would probably be beyond my abilities. I think you might need and to it'd be warm a bit up wasted. Yeah. Well, as SR3 yeah. or Rapture, is it, the new one? Yeah, I don't know whether that's racing. I don't think you can race that. I wouldn't necessarily race, but just you can drive yeah. it on the road as well, which I like the idea of. Yeah, true. Um, And actually, with that, you can bolt on the bigger wing of the race car and change the wheels and it... Can you put slicks on it? Yeah. Okay. So it it becomes the same car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar. Uh, Yeah. Well, no, it can become the same car. But it's a different car. With bolt-on stuff. Yeah. It's like a different engine and everything. Oh, is it? Okay. So now, uh, yeah, so that would be... Because they do a SR10, which I guess is the race car version of the Rapture, I think. Okay. It's like a turbocharged something or other. Eco boost. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the race car version sort of thing. Yeah. Less whatever, airbags and stuff like that. Um, so either something like that or GT mm. race, race car. Yeah. Pretty cool. It would be pretty cool. Yeah. Like full on straight I'm, pipes. Yeah. 
be quite cool to just have another McLaren F1 GTR. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just have five McLaren F1s? You know what? Yeah, fair. I get that. Like, no one's gone two F1s, but if you're going to have a track car and it's a race car, F1 GTR is pretty cool one. Oh, maybe Valkyrie. Oh, yeah. But then, okay, would you have... Because I, I, with the Valkyrie, and I know there's the Valkyrie AMR Pro, whatever that's going to be, the track version. Yeah. I kind of think the track version makes more sense than the road version. In a way. But you can't drive it on the road. Yeah. But you probably can drive it on the road. Because but you, you live in London, it. so you probably wouldn't want to drive on the road. No. Because I live far enough outside of London that I could drive it around the block and it'd be all right. <laughs> But I think, so I, I think that car is, you're only really going to unleash it on track. Like yeah. Properly. I mean, I can't even unleash my Exige Exactly. Often. So if you're, if you're going to only do it on track, might as well go like full mad. But it's really cool on the road. But you could make it road legal. <laughs> yeah, you can. And that's where Lanzante come in. Yeah. And then you could probably have something that with minimal tweaks would be insane on the track. Yeah. And you can just about drive it around the road in the, a stupid manner. The problem with road cars, and I was actually speaking to Dean about this recently, is that when you change the ride height, you suddenly don't have that front downforce anymore. Yeah. So by lowering a car down low enough, you get enough front downforce that you can have a freaking massive wing and balance it. Yeah. Well, as with a road car, you've got to get over a speed bump and therefore you can't run it low enough and... Yeah, you lose all really the, challenging. All of the undercar goodness yeah. disappears with ride height. Yeah, so I, I guess that is why so many of these carts have adjustable height suspension, mm. like race mode on a Senna and P1. Yeah. There's good reason for that. Which you shouldn't do on a road or whatever. Yeah, it, it looks cool, though, <laughs> it looks it? Cool. As a photographer. It looks damn cool. It's nice being able to lower stuff down. And when I rebuild my car, I'm just going to slam the dampers down. Okay. It, just for shooting it okay because it will look cool because i want to do a bit of a reveal because it will be effectively a new car yeah and it'll look pretty mad yeah very highly cool <laughs> oh, i'm looking forward to seeing what's what it's going to be like um well there we go thanks very much for coming on the podcast thank you Been fun. Good. hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.